You're listening to Resurrection South Austin, a community of faith, learning to do life together in the goodness of God. For more information, you can find us online at resaustin.com. Whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even life itself cannot be my disciple. I must say that preaching a text like this in Luke 14, uh, this week, I'm very grateful that my parents aren't here. They were here a couple weeks ago. Um, they're not here today, so I'm thankful. My mother-in-law is here, though. She just uh, joined us, so pray for me today. I want to uh, announce uh, that in the midst of our broken world, where it is easy to be spectators of all that is happening around us, Today we proclaim the good news that God has come near to us and wants us to be his companions along the way, working together to seek his kingdom. It is a strange scene in Luke, isn't it? Jesus in the midst of his ministry of teaching, healing, feeding, confronting religious leaders, having meals uh, with all sorts of different folks, he has developed quite a following, hasn't he? Just prior to this passage and what uh, Father Sean preached on last week, we witnessed Jesus sitting down, having a meal with the religious leaders. But now he's back with the large crowds. And these large crowds were following him everywhere he went. Now, I don't know how his crowds would have compared to some of the megachurches here in Texas. I hear they can get quite big here. But just a few chapters earlier, we see him feeding 5,000. So these are quite large crowds. There was some kind of excitement and wonder and anticipation with whatever he was doing, this movement he was creating in Israel. And then Jesus does the unthinkable. Look here at verse 25. Luke tells us that he turned to the crowd and spoke. So he he physically turned his, his body to the crowd to speak. This is an important turn. Luke does this all the time. He talks about, earlier in Luke, he he talks about how how Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. These bodily actions are important to Luke. Whatever he's about to say is really important in Luke's mind. And this is what he says. Whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even life itself cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. He's not mincing words. It's almost as if he's purposely trying to send people home. He uses the words like hate. We would never use that today. In our contemporary minds, in our, in, in our contemporary ears, this sounds really, really harsh. Jesus, if there's one thing you don't do, whether it's first century Palestine or 21st century North America, it's talk about hate and it's about messing with family. You don't mess with family, and you don't talk about hate. But his use of the word hate here is important because it's not really straightforward. It's not a straightforward understanding of what we understand hate to be. But it's not any less radical because of it. In in his mind, I think he's being hyperbolic. He's he's trying to, like, skirt the edges of what the word hate could mean. But he's trying to, to, to speak to something specific here. The worst of the, you'd ha- the, the, worst of the, you- the word hate and how he uses it harkens back actually to the Old Testament 
So if you remember in Malachi, it's a very common phrase actually. Uh, you've probably heard it before. When God says that Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. Or in Deuteronomy where uh, there are regulations that are set up for men who have two wives. I know that's not really kosher, obviously anymore today, but in Deuteronomy apparently it was. Uh, there are regulations about, about having two wives, one who is loved and one who is hated. And it's not a literal meaning. It's not saying one was actually hated. It's more like a secondary form of love. Or other people will talk about this idea of hatred uh, that Jesus is getting at here as a detachment from something. So it's more like it's about rightly ordered relationships, rightly ordered attachments. And this gets to uh, the first thing I want to share with you this morning, that following Jesus requires us to put our earthly loyalties, desires, and relationships in their proper place underneath the reign of Christ and his kingdom. It could be very well that family is the thing that keeps some of us from truly following Jesus, but it could be anything. It could be all sorts of things. It could be our careers. It could be the pursuit of safety and security in our lives. It could be the drive for success and power. It could be possessions. Jesus talks about possessions. It could be that. It could be our devices, technology. How many of us spend how many hours a day on our phones? And the list can go on and on and on and on. And I wonder what it might be for you. What is the thing that most often gets in the way for you of following Jesus? What is it he is calling you to hate in this way that we're talking about today? Where do you find yourself attached to things that keep you from seeking his kingdom on this earth? Deuteronomy, as we read earlier, talks, has another way of talking about this in verse 17. It says, but if your hearts turn away and you do not hear, but are led astray to bow down to other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall perish. We see Israel time and time again often distracted and pulled away from their worship of God by idols just as those in the crowd with Jesus were distracted and pulled away in all sorts of ways, and just, as, just in the same way that we ourselves are so often distracted and pulled away from seeking him and his kingdom. But there is a remedy here. It just might not be the remedy we want. Let's look at verse uh, 27 here. Jesus then goes on to say, whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Learning how to hate, that is learning how to rightly order our desires and attachments, requires participation with Christ in his death. He calls us to carry our cross as he did. As German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a famous German theologian from the, uh, during the time of the Nazi regime, he, uh, he wrote this in, a, in the book called The Cost of Discipleship, which is a great kind of exposition of essentially everything Jesus is saying here. But Bonhoeffer says this. He says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Jesus turns to us and calls us to die to the desires and to the attachments that are keeping us from him. I don't know what your crosses are. I suspect, I suspect that some of you actually probably have far greater crosses to bear than I've ever known, but we all have them. We all have our, our crosses to bear. One of the best illustrations 
I've ever really come across to, to really highlight this text in, in Luke um, goes all the way back to the third century. While the church was still forming and growing in the midst of the Roman Empire, uh, there was this saint, what we call now as a saint, but she, she was a, a noblewoman who lived in Carthage. She lived with her, her husband, her son, and she actually had a slave uh, named Felicity. And during this, during this time in North, North Africa, which, which is where Carthage was, there was this center that was like a, there was a really vibrant Christian community there. And the Roman Empire during this time in the third century, he decided to crack down on Christianity because he was, he, he was so concerned that these Christians that were out there in the Roman Empire were starting to threaten Roman patriotism. So he focused his attention particularly in Carthage with these Christians there. The, the very first people he actually arrested when he went there, or when the Roman troops went there, uh, were these five new Christians who were being catechized as they were preparing for baptism. I'm kind of joking around. I was trying to decide if that was a, a really good plug for our catechism class, which it just started this morning. But as you will see that it may or may not be, depending on how you look at it. Uh, but this, this, pr this process of catechism catechesis that they were going through was really shaping them and forming them in the way of Jesus. And one of these Christians that was being catechized was Perpetua, this noble woman that I mentioned. And as so soon as she was arrested by the Roman, Roman Empire, the Roman troops, she was imprisoned and her father came to her immediately and he begged for her to renounce that she was a Christian in order to save herself. Her father just came to her and was like, please, just renounce this. Who cares? Just save yourself. And her reply was really, really amazing, actually. Um, her reply was, Father, do you see this vase here? Could it be called by anything other than what it is? And he said, no, of course not. It's a vase. Well, ne neither can I be called anything other than what I am, a Christian. So her, her, uh, some time passed, she was still imprisoned, and her father visited her again. Knowing that her hearing before the Roman government was coming up soon, he pleaded with her again saying, have pity on my gray head. Have pity on me, your father. If I deserve to be called your father, if, you have, if I've favored you above all your brothers, if I've raised you to reach this prime of your life, please have pity on me. And he threw himself down before her and kissed her hands and he said, do not abandon me to the reproach of men. Think of your brothers. Think of your mother and your aunt. Think of your child. Give up your pride. Perpetua was certainly moved by her father's plea, but she remained unshaken. She tried to even comfort her father, saying, it will all happen at the prisoner's docks as God wills, but you may be sure that we are not left to ourselves, but are all in his power. We are in God's power here. And her father left the prison dejected. So the day of the hearing arrived, Perpetua and her friends were marched before the governor of Rome in, uh, in, in the town at the time. His name was Hil Hilarionus. I can't really pronounce his name. It's not important. Perpetua's friends were questioned first, and each one of them admitted to being a Christian. Each of them refused to make an imperial sacrifice. 
And then the governor turns to Perpetua and asks her the same question as he did the, the, her, the same question he asked her friends. And the story goes at that moment that her father carrying Perpetua's son in her arms burst into the room. He grabbed Perpetua and pleaded again, perform the sacrifice, have pity on your baby. And the governor even jumped in at this point. He said, have pity on your father's head, please. He's pleading with you. Offer the sacrifice for the welfare of the emperor. But Perpetua just said simply, I will not. Are you a Christian then? Yes, I am, was her response. The governor had no choice but to condemn Perpetua and her friends to die in the arena. Whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even life itself, cannot be my disciple. As the story shows, there is no question that Perpetua loved her family. She loved her father. But her loyalties, ultimately, in the face of such incredible persecution, were with Jesus. The second point I want to highlight today uh, from this text gets back to the crowds that had been following Jesus. I've often wondered who were in these crowds, who were following Jesus, these thousands and thousands that were flocking to him. I'm sure there was all sorts of kinds of people who were wanting to come and see who this rabbi was. Certainly I'm guessing sick, the sick, the blind, the destitute, they had heard of Jesus healing people and I imagine they all were flocking because they would love to be healed as well. I also imagine that there are some who were coming for political reasons. They heard this kingdom was being announced. It was coming near. This leader was coming and, and gathering a crowd of, of people to go to Jerusalem. And I imagine people thinking, this is the king that's going to overthrow the Roman Empire and restore Israel to its former glory. And I know, we know from, from all sorts of different accounts that the religious leaders and the Pharisees were following Jesus. So they probably were in the crowd as well. They were watching him for a different reason. They suspected that this man was attempting to thwart their own power and privilege. And then I think there was, I, I imagine, I don't know if this is true or not, but I can imagine that in that crowd there were people who had no idea what to think of Jesus. But they were enthralled by this spectacle Jesus was healing people, teaching, uh, saying crazy stuff, and they were probably intrigued. Who was this man? Of course, they had the disciples and those who had given up everything to follow Jesus. And while some of those people were there, this larger crowd, I suspect, they were just there to spectate, to observe what, from the sidelines, wanting to know what Jesus was going to do next. But Jesus didn't want an audience. He didn't want spectators who were just going to sit there on the sidelines observing. He wanted a people who were going to participate with him in this kingdom work, alongside of him and with him. This was the good news that he was coming to proclaim to them. God had called and empowered Israel to enact his redemptive, his redemptive work in the world. And we know that Israel ultimately failed in that project, right? So in the Old Testament, we see time and time again, like I said before, of Israel being called to do this work and, and failing. And so God himself came into the world in Jesus, sort of like as a tag team partner, tagging in so Israel could watch from the outside of the ring. That's a wrestling reference. 
don't often do that, but um, that's actually not true. That's not how it, ha how it happened, right? He didn't, it's not like God just came in here and said, hey, okay, Israel, you failed. It's all, it's all on me now. That's not how it works. He came into the world to be with the people, to redeem and restore them, and to send the Spirit to empower them to join with him in the work of, of advancing, proclaiming the kingdom. It's not a relay race where the baton is passed. Israel failed, passed the baton to Jesus, now he's gonna go do it. It's more like a, a, a I think of it as like a team bike race. I don't know if you guys ever watch bike racing or know much about uh, bike racing where these, these teams of, of racers together and they're all racing together, and it's, it's like that where we're racing with Jesus. He's in the lead, we're drafting on him, but we're in this together, seeking after and proclaiming the kingdom. Initially, I had thought about using a football reference, but I assume it's probably too soon from last night. I'm trying to be pastoral here. But you get the idea that it's, Jesus is not, he did not come into this world, I mean, he came to this, into this world to save us, to redeem Israel, to re redeem us, and, and, and all that, but he also came to participate with us, to join in with us, to empower us to do this work along with him. And the point I'm trying to make and to try to highlight in all of this is that we are really good at being spectators in the world. Especially in 21st century North America, we are so good at being spectators, of just being on the outside observing things, criticizing, um, whatever it might be. Technology, social media have made us really, really, really good at this. We live in a culture that Andy Crouch calls easy everywhere. And I think this is true for our churches as well. Not all churches, of course. I think on the whole, um, you know, there's lots of churches that don't embody this, but I would say in North America, this is easy for churches to, to succumb to this idea that we are consumers first, observers, spectators on the sideline, letting, uh, just coming to church on Sundays and letting, some, letting someone else do the work for us. Church has just become entertainment for a lot of people. And as much as I don't want to admit this, I know I have this tendency in myself, and I'm a, I'm a pastor. I just kind of want to sit on the sidelines at times and hope that Jesus will just go ahead, perform miracles, feed the 5,000, so I don't have to. Uh, once heard Andy Crouch, uh, who I just referred to, he gave this analogy that I've, I always have found helpful, um, and so I'll probably overuse it in my lifetime, but uh, just wanted to share it with you. He talks about um, music, the idea of music, um, and how in our world today it's become so, so easy uh, to listen to music, just to, like, to be observers, to be spectators, to be consumers of music. All we have to do is pull up on our iPhone or on our computers, Spotify, iTunes, whatever it is, and we have access to any kind of music in the world we want to. In like seconds, we can, we can listen to whatever we want to, and we just put our headphones in and just listen and just observe and spectate. And it requires almost zero effort on our part. And there's nothing wrong with this. It's like, I love listening to music. It's, it's, it's amazing. It's, there's nothing wrong with that specifically, but he argues that it, it there's nothing that compares to the richness that comes with learning to actually play an instrument. To learn how to play, to, to whether, you know, there's all sorts of different kinds of instruments you can learn. To actually learn how to play it, to learn how to play it with other people, 
to learn how to play it, um, to, to jam together, to like go to, con you know, play it at a concert, whatever it is, the actual act of learning how to play music is far, um, the, the richness of it is so much greater than just putting on headphones and listening to something on your, on your smartphone. It's easy to be spectators, but there's a richness, uh, a depth, uh, uh, there's meaning in participating and learning how to, to become disciples just as we learn how to learn an instrument. So in the midst of our broken worlds, in the midst of the easy everywhere culture that we live in, where it's easy to be spectators of all that is happening around us, as I said earlier, today we proclaim the good news that God has come near to us and he wants us to be his companions along the way, working to seek the kingdom together. You've probably heard Father Sean say this before. I know this is one of the things he likes to talk about all the time, uh, that we're not casual observers of the kingdom, but we are called to participate in the kingdom. Participation is a big word for Father Sean, and I think he's right. Jesus knows that our many loyalties in life, uh, and there are many, will distract us and keep us from actually being with him in the world. And he's not going to force it upon us, but he desires to be companions with us along the way. Jesus actually desires, this is like huge, if, if this is true, this is huge, that Jesus actually desires to be yours and my companions each and every day. If we believed that, how would that change our lives? How would it, would it change the way we wake up every morning to know that Jesus wants to be with you today? He wants to be your companion. How would it change the way we approach raising our children? How would it change the way we, we approach hard decisions in life if we know that Jesus wants to be with us in that, in that hard decision? Real, actual participation in Christ and his kingdom necessarily transforms everything, our relationships, our desires, our attachments in this world. This is what Jesus is trying to get at in this passage. And I think this is actually what we witness in Paul's letter to Philemon uh, this morning. It was a long passage that we read, but I think this is what he's getting at in this little letter in the back of the New Testament. It's all about this radically transformed relationship that we see and we witness before our very eyes. We know that Philemon was a, was a Christian, but he also was a slave owner. He, he owned the slave Onesimus. And they had some sort of falling out. We don't exactly know what all the details around it, but Onesimus leaves and comes and joy, joins Paul while Paul was in prison. And he stays with Paul for a while. And Paul ends up being like a father figure to him. And this, this, this slave who, was one, who, who came to Paul has this just life-changing relationship. And Paul, as we see in, the, in this book, in the, in the words we just read, Paul's understanding of Onesimus changes. Onesimus cannot be viewed as a slave any longer. He must be welcomed as a brother. And so he pleads with Philemon. He writes him this letter and he says this, perhaps this is the reason that we were separated, he was separated for you for a while. So that while you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. 
Paul is essentially saying, if you consider me your partner, if we're going to continue this work together of advancing the kingdom, proclaiming and embodying the kingdom, this relationship must be reconciled. And not only reconciled, but actually transformed into something wholly new. He was once a slave, but now he is a brother, a beloved brother. So who or what do you need to hate today? Or in other words, as we prepare for confession and Eucharist this morning, who or what relationship or attachments or possession needs to be left behind, transformed, or put in its place today? What needs to be left behind so that you can participate and be companions with Jesus along the way and participate in his kingdom? You're listening to Resurrection South Austin, a community of faith, learning to do life together in the goodness of God. For more information, you can find us online at resaustin.com.